1: Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries. 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Before formally introducing who my guest is of today, my amazing phenomenal guest, I want to do as I always do in the intro. I just want to thank my loyal listeners, my podcast subscribers, reviewers. I also want to thank my corporate sponsors, Halton Honda, Aha That, and Forever. I also want to thank C-Suite Radio Network. We're of course following the live show of my guest of each week. You can eventually find the podcast link. Over on my host page, also living fearlessly with Lisa McDonald on C-Suite Radio Network. So, who is my phenomenal guest today? Well, my guest is a gentleman known on the global stage by the name of Ben Gay III. He has been called a living legend in the sales world. After 50-plus years in professional selling, he has been the number one salesperson in every organization in which he has worked. At age 25, he was president of what was then the World world's largest direct sales network marketing company, having been personally trained by fellow sales legends, J. Douglas Edwards, Dr. Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, William Penn Patrick, Zig Ziglar, and many other sales giants. One of the most famous and popular and powerful sales trainers in the world, Ben now writes, publishes, produces The Closers, series of books, audios, videos, newsletters, teletraining live seminars, a series that is considered to be the foundation of professional selling. Ben was the founder and is the current executive director of the National Association of Professional Salespeople. Ben and his lovely wife Gigi live near Lake Tahoe in the little northern California town of Placerville, California, where the California gold rush began. Wow. Welcome to Living Fearlessly. How are you, Ben? Ben?
0: I'm fine, Lisa, as I hope you are. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. You could have gone on and on. I love hearing I, I about me. Have. I could I, <laughs> have.
1: You know what? I could have plugged you, and that would have eaten up the whole time, and we never would have actually got to hear your lovely voice and hear it right out of your mouth. So, <laughs> So thank you for your patience. But I just want to say, Ben, you know, for the listening audience here, we've had this planned uh, and on the calendar for quite some time. And I just want to say the conversation that unfolded between you and I on the phone initially was one of the best conversations I've ever had with a prospective guest who I was prepared to showcase. So I just want to say... Thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for the gift of your time. And thank you for your contributions to what you've done and given on the global scale in terms of paying it forward and being of service. Congratulations.
0: Well, thank you very much. That's more than kind of you. And I have been looking forward to this uh, moment for several months.
1: I know. It's been crazy. I mean, that comes with being oversubscribed. So, again, thank you to everybody who's been a part of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald, Uh, you being pivotal to that as well, Ben. So, you know, everybody who follows me, and I'm very gracious for that, knows that my approach to all of my interviews is very unscripted. I think it makes for a much more uh, authentic and organic discussion. You never quite know where it's going to go or what direction or or what comes out of it. So, one question I do typically ask of my guests at the beginning is, what was the inception of your journey? When was it you first became clear within yourself that you emboldened and embodied this ability to connect with people, resonate with people.
0: Well, uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I could point out several points in my life where I uh, thought maybe uh, I knew where I was going to head, at least generally speaking. But uh, the official start of, of doing extremely well, making large money amounts of money and traveling all over the world and so on, began on september fifteenth nineteen sixty five that's a Wednesday in Atlanta Georgia at about eleven forty five a m when i stepped into i stepped into a rocket cleverly disguised disguised as a phone booth and uh, answered a little one ad in the Atlanta journal constitution within minutes of answering that Uh, uh, ad and being told to be be in the guy's office or never bother him again. I I had tried to interview him as to whether or not he was worthy of hiring me. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But within minutes of that call, I had joined uh, a company called Holiday Magic Cosmetics. I had met another applicant who'd answered the same ad, Zig Ziglar, mm-hmm. uh, a little-known cookware salesman from Columbia, South Carolina at the time. And off we went. Two years later, I was president of the company, and uh, a position for which I was not qualified, but I can safely discuss that openly now. At the time, I just faked my way through it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was 25 years old and running, directly and indirectly, 125 separate corporations in 25 different countries. Wow. I I can't tell you how many board meetings I sat in staring at whatever paperwork the accounting department gave me and trying to look wise and profound. (laughs) While thinking, what the heck is this?
1: Right. What am I doing? And what have I signed up for? And who am I again?
0: (laughs) My my greatest fear for for several years, uh, early years of that experience was having uh, sitting in my big, impressive office and having the door across my desk fly open and having my boss, the owner of the company, William Penn Patrick, uh, have him say, excuse me, I've been thinking about you and your qualifications. (laughs) Get out of here. Wow. I was a high school graduate uh, making $100 a week when I answered that ad.
1: Incredible. Well, going back to the how pivotal of a moment that was, could you be just a little bit more precise? I think you even factored in the time zone you were in on that day, on that year, in, in the province, in the state that you were in. I mean, yeah. obviously, that was a pivotal moment for you. So you said something that I think is very key, you know, kind of faking it till you make it. So was there any... Was there any uh, struggle on your part mentally? Because we know uh, mindset is a big part of what it is that we do and our ability to execute and navigate the journey and the trajectory of where we're going every single day. But did you ever struggle with imposter syndrome?
0: Uh, yeah, I did. I've never heard that term before, but I know exactly what it means. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I did on a regular basis. Uh, you know, I was glib. I was voted wittiest in my uh, senior class in high school, and, and I'd won a few little sales contests. I sold the most Krispy Kreme donuts uh, in a fundraiser and won a Columbia bicycle, which I thought was sort of cool. And, uh, you know, a little, few little glimmers along the way that maybe this was going to work out. I gave the invocation at my high school graduation. Gave the signal to stand up, so I could read, uh, so I could give the prayer I'd memorized, written and memorized. And three thousand people rose as my hands went up. And I remember thinking, "Whoa, this is this is sort of neat." Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was, you know, public speaking uh, maybe got born there. Although it was five years before I made any money doing it. So it's just little glimmers along the way of maybe I'm on the right path. What I did though when uh, I joined the the cosmetic company was people are always asking what would you do differently and what I would do differently is uh, I would have gotten serious sooner I mm-hmm. didn't learn I didn't learn the scripts for instance, for the first six months because. Uh, like Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman, I believe that a smile and a handshake and shine shoes would get you through most situations. Not true. I Not found, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I Not found true that. at all. So the same <laughs> the same gentleman who hung up on me when I was interviewing him from my phone booth uh, called me aside one day, and and as I walked into the, the big meeting room, we had 500 Thousand people every night in the Atlanta meeting, six nights a week. And uh, he pulled me aside and he said, Ben, I don't want you to come back anymore. I don't mm-hmm. want you attending the meetings. Well, that wasn't an option in my life. By that time, we had $5,000 invested, which is $50,000 in today's money, and we hadn't made any money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it, it, not a dime had changed hands. And I said, Why? You know, I'm a friendly guy. Why why can't I come? He said, Well you're depressing people. You don't (laughs) You don't learn the script to invite people to the meeting, so you never bring anybody. People see you here all the time, so they assume that you know something about the business, and they call you over to help with their prospects, but you don't know that script, so you blow off their prospects, and then you can't help us from the front of the room because you haven't learned the opportunity meeting uh, presentation either. That was 47 minutes of uh, word-for-word explanation of the business, and uh, so he said, frankly, you're depressing people. And I said, okay, let's figure – since I leaving is not an option and you don't want me as an enemy, trust mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how do I fix this? He said, learn the scripts when you can stand in front of my desk and give the invitation script, the uh, opportunity meeting script, and the six closes If you needed six closes, there was a system after the meeting was over where you started drawing circles. There were six breaks where you'd ask for the order. When you can do all that word for word, standing in front of my desk, you can come back. So roughly, I didn't keep track on a calendar, but roughly 10 days later, I was standing in front of his desk, and I fulfilled all the requirements. And he said, fine, now go out and talk to people. And either that night or the next night, r- rather quickly, I brought five people to the meeting, the first five I'd ever brought after six months. And uh, the, I didn't do the meeting from the front of the room. They didn't trust me, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> But I sat there quietly, and at the appropriate time, the, the film, which wound up the meeting, said, turn to the person who brought you here and ask how you can get started in holiday magic. The lights came up. I turned to them, whipped out my trusty yellow legal pad, and began drawing circles and going through the closes. I don't, I don't think I got through all of them. It wasn't necessary, but I got through the ones that were required to have all five people by. And uh, one, I think, had to go get some money and took a day or two. But all five said yes. And I made initially, it, I won't worry with the marketing plan, but uh, initially that night I made $2,500. Uh, by drawing circles on a legal pad, 25000 in today's money. And uh, they all shook my hand and left. And Dempsey, came, Bill Dempsey, the guy who recruited me and thrown me out, came over and said, how's that feel? And I said, I'm in. I got wow. it. I'm in. And uh, I started climbing up through the organization, became number one in the company, and uh, became president. Won a contest with a mystery prize. There was second prize was Rolls-Royce. third prize was a Lincoln Continental, I think, and then a Thunderbird, and then lesser prizes. The first prize was a mystery prize. Well, it turned out mystery prize was presidency of the company.
1: Wow.
0: And wow. I asked Bill Patrick, William Penn Patrick, the owner, later, I said, why was it a mystery prize? He said, in case somebody won that I didn't like. Right. And I, then I would have changed it. (laughs) So apparently he liked me.
1: Well, you said something that was very key, and I want to go back to that because I think this is so important when we contrast the before and after, when we talk about the culture of working environments and and sometimes how things can be stuffy and things can be scripted. Now, obviously there was merit to the scripting, and there was benefits that... uh, You know, you understood and it came to fruition for you, the tangible results of buying into the so-called scripts. But fast forward to where we are today and everything you've learned about yourself throughout the journey, Ben, in the sales world. Would you be so inclined to go back and and absorb something as gospel from somebody who's wanting to spoon feed you? Because does that not deconstruct a little bit of your own uniqueness, your own signature, your own way of, of showing up authentically in a way that's you and solely you as opposed to somebody else just handing it down and regurgitating and you therefore doing the same?
0: Well, when I became head of the company, I altered scripts and improved them and so on. You know, I used to complain about certain things when I was out in the field, when I got in the home office, I could actually do something about them. So I understand what you're saying, but anyone who's been in selling more than 30 days is on a script now. They tend to say the same things over and over again. So what we're discussing is, uh, do you use an effective script that has been plotted out and tested or... Do you use the script that you drifted into through laziness and slothfulness? People say, well, I, you know, I would never watch anything that was scripted. Really? Do you watch television? Have you ever been to the movies? Uh, have you ever gotten a direct mail piece in the, in the mail? The famous Wall Street Journal letter that says 25 years ago on a spring morning, blah, blah. It's been their number one uh, letter. It's their test piece. They've been trying to beat it for over 40 years. It's scripted. They found out what worked. The best example I can give uh, that people can picture is Hal Holbrook has done Mark Twain for many years. I assume he still does it. I haven't heard that Hal has left us. Uh, but it's a two-hour presentation minus a break in the middle. Uh, Hal memorized word for word nine hours of Mark Twain material. Wow. Wow. And- And what he does is he walks on stage and he has a story that he always opens with. In my case, it's uh, let's get this Ben Gay thing out of the way. And the the audience laughs and then we deal with the Ben Gay issue. uh, And I can tell by the way they laugh how hard I'm going to have to work the rest of the way. Uh, It's my test, and it serves a purpose of getting Ben Gay out of the way. Uh, Hal Holbrook tells the same story at the beginning of every presentation he does, but he says he's never given the same presentation twice in all these years uh, because their reaction to the first story. Determines the next story he tells, and mm-hmm. the the uh, the reaction to that determines the next story. You're probably too young to remember, but picture a jukebox. You put you put your. No, I'm in.
1: not. I'm not okay. too young for that.
0: Well, you you put in you. You put in your numbers, right? Whatever you want, A14. And in the old days, this arm would go back to this row of records that were sitting there and pick up the one you picked and put it down on the turntable Mm -hmm. and play the record exactly. It was always the way it was supposed to be. So that's called scripting. Also, they sang a song that somebody had written down. But anyway, uh, based on the reaction he gets to the first story, he goes back into his script vault lifts up that record like a jukebox, puts it down on the turntable and plays it for him. And then the reaction to that determines the next one and the next one and the next one for two hours. Every word of it is scripted. every word first it was written by Mark Twain, then memorized by him. and every time and I've seen it five or six times, the audience is mesmerized, absolutely mesmerized. When I give you a scripted presentation, you don't know it's scripted. For instance, you just asked me how I started in the business, mm-hmm. oversimplified, and I said on Wednesday September 15th 1965 I answered an ad and I cut it a little short cuz I'm aware acutely aware of your time constraints but that I've given that explanation of how I joined MLM and started making a lot of money I've given that explanation thousands of times and it's mm-hmm. worth I can give it to you again it'll sound remarkably familiar so it's just that so you don't go hi my name is Ben Gay blah 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 for 20 minutes and then ask for the order I'm telling you that each segment within your presentation is scripted. If you ask me, I've got a stack of books here beside me, the Closers, the the famous sales training books, the Closers Part 1, the Closers Part 2, Part 3. The book I wrote for J. Douglas Edwards, Sales Closing Power, wrote it for him after he died. He never wrote a book. And then the Art and Science Resort Sales book I did for the timeshare industry. I can go in a scripted manner and explain all five books to you verbatim like I always have and you would never catch me. Or you can say, tell me about the closers part two. And so I just skip over the scripting for part one and I go right to the part two script. Because I figured out the best way to explain it to you, mm-hmm. uh, so why would I try something else? I mean, just it's goofy. Nobody does it in show business. Nobody does it in, you know, in uh, music or acting or television or whatever. Uh, everybody's scripted, and so is so are the people who say they hate scripting. They're on a script. Go to a party, listen to them tell a story. Go back to the next uh, party, they will be telling the same story again, because they have limited inventory, but they will tell the story accurately, inaccurately, effectively, or ineffectively, verbatim the way they told it before. They're on script. So I'm not arguing scripting, I'm arguing quality of scripting. Beautiful.
1: Beautiful. Well, I appreciate that succinct, cohesive explanation. That really clarifies things for me, So, and I'm sure... Uh, for the listening audience as well and eventually the podcast subscribers so i'd be interested to know what is your script for living fearlessly ben
0: Uh, i haven't worked on it yet but oh uh,
1: ben (laughs) ben not good
0: (laughs) (laughs) but here's here's what i do because i write a lot of scripts for people okay so let's be
1: impromptu see this is this is impromptu so let yeah let's revert it turn it on its head so if you were to construct a script for living fearlessly what would that be
0: I would talk about I'm not going to give you word for word the script because I haven't thought it through. What I was about to say is the way I work with people when I'm writing scripts is I always tell them, you give it your best shot. Well, I don't know how to write a script. That isn't what I said. I said, you give it your best shot. Sit down with a friend, explain it to them, record that, transcribe it, send it to me. What I will do is I'll take the splinters out of the board. I I know the words that work and don't work and so on. So if I had to do Living Fearlessly for Lisa McDonald, what I would ask you to do is tell me what you're trying to get across and so on. I'd have you do it. And then being a master at selling and wording and writing, I would shape it for you, but it would it would revolve around uh, a, a brave lady who has uh, taken on the uh, uh, the audio world and and the video world. I know is coming, the audio world and video world with her own radio program and so on called Living Fearlessly, where she. Uh, take rips the bark off the tree I call it taking the mask off Mm -hmm. Uh, you know people have a a mask they put on and then uh, a good salesperson's job is to remove the mask so we know what we're really dealing with I also talk about removing the mask if I'm dealing with someone and the mask comes off and I see what they really are good or bad it affects my relationship with them if it's bad we're done. I won't make a big deal out of it. I just won't be part of your life anymore. So you have, <laughs> you have, you have the ability uh, to do that. When you and I were doing the warm up for this thing, you said I'm I'm not going to operate off a script. I'm going to fly free, and I think it works better that way. And that's the way I like. Uh, that's the way I like you to ask the questions to mm-hmm. which I'll respond, <laughs> probably with a scripted answer. Uh,
1: and and that's working well for us. I'm, I'm really appreciating the synergistic collaboration, so thank you.
0: Excellent. Synergistic collaboration. I'm only a high school graduate, Lisa. So, you know, shorten up the words wherever you can and give give good old Ben Gay a break.
1: Okay. <laughs> All right, you're <laughs> off the hook. Going forward, I'll, uh, now that I've got your permission to talk to you like a four-year-old, I will.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My English uh, writing teacher who urged me and and spurred me into winning the state of Georgia writing championship as a senior in high school, I couldn't, I could barely read, never mind write, but she took me under a wing and made me uh, do it. She said to me one day in a sort of a private informal coaching session, she said, Ben, always write as a sixth grade level. Mm. You know, so much so people can understand what you write. But she said, always write at a sixth grade level, which fortunately for you will not be a problem.
1: Oh. <laughs> Backhanded compliment. <laughs> Love <Yeah>. those. <laughs> yeah. Smart teacher. Yeah. Um so let me ask you then, Ben, what was the mask you wore before it got ripped off?
0: Uh, happy dappy kid, personality guy, everything's going to work out because I'm funny. And and uh, I've always sort of glided through life, not to any great victories up to that point. But, you know, i went skipping along. And when everybody else was trying to study hard to pass a test, I didn't really care. I'd learn enough. You know, I was a C student on a good day. Me and, too. Yeah, well... <laughs> Yeah. When you're voted wittiest, that's Latin for C student. There you go. <laughs> we don't have time to be funny and serious simultaneously. <laughs> so uh, that, that was probably uh, my mask when Bill Dempsey and others along the way, uh, Earl Nightingale and Dr. Hill and I uh, have had some serious conversations about my strengths and weaknesses. Uh, but that was probably the, the beginning of someone saying, that isn't working. You know, Mm -hmm. laughing and giggling is cute and a lot of fun. I'm sure it works at a party. However, in business, you got to know what you're talking about.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me ask you, Ben, what do you deem in your years of experience and your success? What do you deem to be the attractor factor in terms of one, to be a consistent closer?
0: Well, in the beginning, it was as blunt as I was trying to make a a better living because I was putting my first wife she's now passed away Marcia, I was putting her through nursing school, which is challenging on a hundred was challenging on a hundred dollars a week. I had to make more money, and my father, uh, who had done very well, had made it clear to me all my life. Uh, you're going to have to fly on your own. You inherit nothing. He told me one time, he, something came up about trust funds. He said, Here, here's my program for you just to clear up your thinking. If I have warning, uh, I will die at work and I'll probably have a quarter in my pocket or a nickel, whatever the term was at the time. And if you're lucky, I will lunge into a candy machine as I drop to the floor. And if, <laughs> if, if, if you're there, you can pull the handle. And he said, so pick the candy bar you really like because that's your inheritance wow and and he meant it and he died at work unfortunately I wasn't there and he didn't lunge into a candy machine but I by that time I had the concept I my comfort zone a term that my buddy Jim Newman uh, made famous my comfort zone was being born into the right family in the right place I was raised two blocks out of the front gate of East Lake Golf Club Bobby Jones home course where everybody that was anybody belonged and we. We had belonged for up till my mother uh, passed away for 40, 50 years, whatever it was. So I grew up around successful people. Dad came from a family of a total of seven kids, he being one of the seven. They were, except for an uncle that was killed in the war, in World War Two. Everybody else was in selling and successful. So my comfort zone was set where I thought that was normal. I just thought you grew up, laughed, giggled, you know, uh, got in some business somewhere, and then you live like that. Then I discovered <laughs> that wasn't the way it worked. I remember right. when, when Marsh and I moved into our first apartment together after uh, uh, in Atlanta, It was $75 a month. It was two rooms, three if you count the bathroom, which you had to count because that's how you got from the living room to the bedroom. You had to go through through the bathroom. It had no kitchen. We had hot plates and so on. You had to remember to only plug in two at a time. If you plugged in three, you blew every fuse on the 11th floor, uh, which did not make the neighbors happy and so on. But I remember as I walked in and what I had was the remnants of half Of the bachelor furniture that Jimmy Rucker and I had shared because we had an apartment as two young bachelors. And so I had half of that. And I think looking back, Jimmy picked the good stuff because I looked around. I thought I was in a rummage sale. And, (laughs) and, and, And I remember thinking to myself, something's gone wrong. I was raised at East Lake Country Club in the biggest home in the neighborhood, and everything went along great. and rode around. Dad like Buicks. He could have driven anything he wanted, but he rode around in big Buick Roadmasters and so on. That was life. And suddenly, uh, I've got an old used car down in the p- parking lot. I'm paying $75 a month for an apartment that doesn't have a kit. Oh, and we were washing dishes in the bathtub. Wow. What, what few dishes uh, we Had, and uh, so my comfort zone kicked in. That's right about when I answered that ad. It's it's right about when I picked up a copy of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and, for the first and only time in my life, looked through the want ads looking for a job. And when I look, you know, I looked down through the thing, and I'm not a plumber. And I remember after that, I ran through psychologist that that didn't qualify for that. Couldn't (laughs) type. (laughs) You know, I can still picture most of them, many of them were in alphabetical order. You know, Uh, there was nothing in there I was qualified to do. And just as I was about to put down the paper, uh, I saw a thing that said business opportunities. The one ads continued on, but business opportunities. I didn't know what the break was really between a business opportunity and a job. Turns Mm -hmm. out it's significant. But uh, and that's where my eyes fell on. If you know anything about marketing plans and want to make more money, dial this number. Mm -hmm. so i didn't know what a marketing plan was but i wanted to make more money so i jumped into that famous phone booth i wish i still had it i'd love to put uh gild it in gold and put it in our living (laughs) (laughs) room. i jumped into the phone booth and off we went
1: amazing well you you touched upon something that i want to impress upon the listening audience i want to revisit what you're describing here because oftentimes desperation does catapult people into a reinvention process and Tony Robbins talks about this too you know so when you are in a state of desperation you know it becomes a sink or swim situation so you have to be very clear fundamentally on i've got one of two choices i'm either going to use the hardship i'm going to use the trials and tribulations and i'm going to make that serve me and by serving me that propels me in a position to further serve other people in the way that i'm skilled and uniquely gifted to give back uh so you clearly found your voice based on hundred dollars a month wasn't going to carry you too far particularly if you're paying seventy five dollars for rent and all the other things that were going on for you at the time. So I think this is important because for people who are listening, they look at the story of the people who I'm showcasing today and go, well, how could I ever be a Gay?" And of course, we're not here to be clones of each other. It's about finding what's signature to your voice, your passion, your purpose, your skill set, and honing it and doing it day after day. So to me, that's a form of scripting. That's what athletes do. It's what musicians do. It's what entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs do. So I want to thank Thank you very much for crystallizing that, because you've now normalized for the listening audience. Ben Gay isn't all the success that Ben Gay reads uh, and is today on the global stage just by coincidence. I mean, you've mastered this. You've figured things out. Uh, you know, you've gone through all kinds of inner processes to establish what your niche is and to really make what you do sing and soar as a human being. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are some of the fundamental ingredients or what are some of the life lessons that you could very succinctly impart to the listening audience in terms of whatever it is that resonates with them as a desire, a passion, a purpose, but not knowing how to strategically align themselves?
0: If I could, let me hitchhike on your first part for just a second first. You know, you sit in an audience. I've been in that audience. And you look up on the stage and, you know, oh, that's magnificent, but I could never be that person. One of the things that I've done uh, recently comes with uh, being a little older, wiser, and not, frankly, caring as much as I used to about what my, I love it. What my image is. I, it was said of Waylon Jennings and uh, one of his country singer things that they would not walk across the street to watch a pissant eat a bale of hay and and the first time I've heard that I didn't quite get it now I get it I wouldn't walk across the street either uh, for it but anyway uh, one of the things that my audiences seem to really love is behind the magic curtain. I tell them not to hurt anybody. I I do it for encouragement. Earl Nightingale was my buddy, my friend, my mentor, the voice of all my companies uh, and uh, so on. But he went bankrupt three times before I met him. And I saved him and his company by placing a rather large order that I already planned to place, but I I placed it six months early because I was told by two of his vice presidents, if you don't place the order now in, let's say, January, when you go to place it in June, we won't be here. So, uh, but Earl was very open with me about that. Dr. Napoleon Hill worked for me, the Think and Grow Rich gentleman, worked mm-hmm. for me the last two years, two and a half years of his life as my personal mentor and coach. We didn't call it that then, but anyway... I got to know him. His family was in shambles. He was not a real good family man for whatever reason. Uh, he had his little run with Thinking Grow Rich, and then it and he were sinking into obscurity when, by coincidence, I didn't know either one of them at the time. A gentleman who became my friend and business partner was calling on W. Clement Stone one day, and uh, he gave Clem. Uh, in those days, it was it was traditional to bring a gift to the person you were calling on. He picked up a copy of Think and Grow Rich in a bookstore. He'd never read it, never heard of it. He said it was just a fascinating title, gave it to Clem Stone and never thought any more about it or wouldn't have, except Clem fell in love with it and demanded all of his people in combined insurance, read it and buy it and be prepared to be tested on it in the most casual of conversations that sold over the years, hundreds of thousands of copies, mm-hmm. Clem Clem Stone became Dr. Hill's manager for a few years and pulled him back from obscurity. When uh, he was hired by William Penpatrick to be my friend and mentor, I, Bill always said, you're like the, the uh, kid that you got to put uh, a pork chop around his neck so the dog will play with him. Uh, he... he uh, he had to hire Dr. Hill to be my buddy, uh, and Dr. Hill at that point, 1967, was very happy to get the work. Bill paid him $50,000, which is about a half a million dollars today, wow. to just be on call for me. He didn't have an office in the building. He worked When he was in town, he worked in my office, stayed in my house, and so on. But every time I sort of got full of myself thinking, isn't this wonderful, Dr. Hill likes me, I would remember he was paid $50,000 to like you. So, But th- that's twice in, in Dr. Hill's life, and there are others, but that's twice in Dr. Hill's life he was going down the chute and mm-hmm. uh, got saved. And uh, Jay uh, Douglas said, which the great sales trainer, uh, had some real emotional issues. I was able to spot him because my father always said, check a, ma- a person's, he said man at the time, a man's fingernails. If he bites them, watch out. Well, Doug bit his down to the quick. And on stage was powerful and said the right things, but in his personal life it was a little different. Up to and including committing suicide. So mm-hmm. I could I could go down the list of all these famous people who audiences look at or heard about or whatever, and they sit back and there's a bunch of them out there now. I won't talk about them because they're still doing it, but. They sit back and they go, well, that's great, but I could never be Zig Ziglar, for instance. Well, you, you can't because he was one of a kind. He came out of his mother's womb laughing, giggling, telling funny stories and so on. Right. You know, one in a million personality. But Zig's first big, he was 18 years older than I was. His first big hit came in Holiday Magic. He was in the Navy when I was born. So there's a little spread there. He had not yet had a big hit. Uh, financially, mm-hmm. and uh, he'd struggled and struggled and struggled. And then after being one of the top distributors in Holiday Magic, uh, struggled again. And then he went off and finally became the Zig Ziglar everybody knows. Uh, the uh, So I- even he, with all the laughing and giggling and funny storytelling, he had his severe up, ups and downs. Therefore, to the audience, I say, so can you. You know, mm. you know, I could never be, and I'll use myself like a like a third person product. I could never be Ben Gay. And I said, well. That'll save you six years in federal prison, right there. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, I could never be Ben Gay. Well, good then, your house in Marin County won't be foreclosed on. Uh, <laughs> I could never be Ben Gay. Well, that'll save you the indignity of watching your Cadillacs and Corvettes being towed away on the back of a tow truck. Love uh, it. See, so there's, there's, they, they need to know that side to understand. Mm-hmm. Bill Patrick used to say that someday he was going to put me in a, when we were working together, put me in a glass cage and with a trailer hitch and take me around to shopping centers. And when <laughs> we got there, I would, I would have to get in the glass cage, which would have a huge sign on all four sides that said, if he can do it, anyone can do it.
1: That's a and- great visual.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it, I don't, I'm not sure how much he was kidding. I never saw the glass <laughs> cage under construction, but I, I got the concept. So telling people, uh, openly and honestly, I think I've become far more effective in just the last few years. Instead of hiding behind the charade, I've had great successes, but not, I would skip over those things in the middle. And, uh, and I've also come to understand, having I worked at San Quentin for five years as a consultant and coach, I met some of the baddest of the bad people. I spent nine hours in Charlie Manson's cell talking to wow, him. Wow,
1: I did not know that.
0: Yeah, three different visits, about three hours apiece. He, his cell From his cell, he could see me coming and going on Friday night and Saturday morning, and he asked to meet me. And when the guard came up to me and said, I have somebody who wants to meet you, I said, well, send him on down to the class. I'm, you know, Anyone's allowed. He said, well, this one can't travel like that. <laughs> You're going to have to go to him. I said, okay, who is it? Charlie Manson. I said, whoa. You know, uh, he was a uh, oh, little side thing. I, I warned you, I deviate from time. Yes, please I mean, do. This is I,
1: the yumminess I love.
0: When I walked into uh, Charlie Manson's cell, uh, the first time uh, he had a two bunk cell, but he used the top bunk as a uh, storage thing for the few little things he had in the bottom bunk he slept on. Why didn't he have a bunkmate? Nobody wanted to sleep with Charlie.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: So anyway, on the top bunk, he had some clothing or whatever. And one book, how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie.
1: Hmm.
0: And I said, Charlie, what an interesting choice of reading material. <laughs> said, Something
1: went wrong for you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: he, said, <laughs> he said, yeah, it's the only book I have, only book I read. And uh, I, I said, fascinating, because I knew people who knew Carnegie. I'm, he's one generation ahead of me having the ability mm-hmm. to know. And I said, a fascinating choice. He said, it's my Bible. I couldn't have built the Manson family without it. Get out. Yeah, and if you read the book with that in mind, you can see that. It's like a gun. You know, you can use a gun to defend the village from the marauders, or you can use a gun to stick up a bank. The gun isn't the issue. The issue is what are you going to do with it? The the teachings in How to Win Friends and Influence People uh, generally were aimed at the sales world. That's who he wrote it for. But you can be a homicidal killer and learn from it also if you want to build a crowd around you. So anyway, getting, letting people get behind the magic table and see that, uh, everybody is normal. Everybody's a regular person. Everybody has their hopes, fears, and dreams. Mm -hmm. Everybody has their failures. There's probably somebody in the world uh, that was born a winner and died a winner and didn't have any bumps in the middle. But I've personally met two and a half million people in my 5,000 plus seminars over the years, and I've never met that person. Me neither. Me neither. Yeah, I, I think most of us are just sort of struggling along, uh, doing the best we can with what we have and what we can develop. And that's that's my joy in life. I love to work with people and see the lights come on, just mm-hmm. like people worked with me and turned on my lights. I am deeply grateful that uh, Bill Dempsey answered that uh, call when I made mm-hmm. it. I'm deeply grateful that I fell into a pit of, of people who were hard-charging and successful and gave me role models and so on. Minus that, you and I wouldn't be talking today unless you wow. unless you interview food broker retail salesman on a regular basis.
1: <laughs> 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 who wash dishes out of their
0: bathtub. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, the left-hand side is reserved for dishes, and the right-hand side is reserved for laundry. So what day of the week is it, people? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you you, you, and I could have been married, Lisa. You understand the concept.
1: Yes, I could have been Marsha, or I could be Gigi.
0: Yeah, Marsha was a little bitter about that somehow. And she came uh, from the family was poor as church mice, but it was a step down even for her. Wow.
1: Wow. Well, well, I, I just have to quickly take advantage of this Charlie Manson moment for a second, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I know we're approaching the bottom of the hour, but did you, in your time with him, did you glean, even if it was a glimmer, some element of humanity, remorse, atonement, uh, some connection to what it was he had done, uh, and that resonating with him, did you, did you glean that at all?
0: Not a whole bunch. Humanity, perhaps. Uh, Charlie was crazy, but he wasn't crazy. Have you ever seen him interviewed on television? Geraldo yeah. R- Rivera has interviewed him. In- of course, Charlie just died a few months ago at age 80, and he was engaged to be married. I thought Charlie was finally settling down. But uh, unfortunately, death got him before he could... <laughs> he could- but uh, when when he was on television, he used to do that booga, booga, booga and you yes. know, crazy and shake his head. And Geraldo said he looked death in the eye talking to him. Well, he should have tried it in his cell for nine hours. That was a little Jeez. different with security. But I was sitting there talking to him. I think it was the first night. That's not important. And I heard keys jingling coming down the tier outside of his cell. That's the sign of here comes a guard. If they want you to know they're there, they let the keys jingle. If they don't want you to know they're there, they hold them tight uh, so they can sneak up on you. This guard was jingling keys. And, <laughs> and uh, Charlie, right in mid-sentence, said, excuse me, got up off his bunk, walked over to the, the bars. And when the guy came by, he went, booga, 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 and did all that <laughs> stuff. jumped up and down. And then he came over, sat down, went right back into being a semi-normal human talking to me. He said, I'm sorry. They love that. They get to tell their families I did it to them and everything. So, oh my, so my point is he was crazy, but it was worse than the crazy you saw. He was crazy, devious, subtly. I guess that's the right word. Uh, he uh, uh, He was up to something at all times. And huh. and when people talk about, you know, I can't believe anyone would have followed him anywhere. Let me tell you something. Be tremendously grateful that you didn't meet Charlie Manson in Haight-Ashbury in the late 60s. Yeah. Uh, if you were an 18, 19, 17-year-old yeah. kid, you know, trying to find yourself and, and so on, uh, Charlie filled that need. And sitting there looking at him, he had eyes. When he looked at you, felt like he was looking in your eyes out through the back of your head. He had a, a, a mental power that was really fascinating. Now, yes, he was screwed up <laughs> yes a lot slightly of yeah and i don't think they've found the bodies at the spawn ranch yet i suspect there's 30 or 40 people missing that uh families think they wandered off and became a hippie and never came home again uh i think it's a shame charlie died without saying where if where uh their uh located, because I don't Mm -hmm. think it was just the ones we know about. So, Charlie, uh, yeah, there was some humanity there, but mainly it was uh, like out of a Star Wars movie. I've never seen a Star Wars movie, but I know there are always some from the dark side and from the Mm -hmm. this and that. He was uh, uh, from the evil side of humanity. In his defense, not that I feel prone to defend him. He was raised in the prison system, California Youth Authority, uh, and so on. He didn't have a normal childhood. He didn't have a home that he broke away from. He was raised in the prison system.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, clearly he was working with the wrong script. Yep. 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 Yeah. So I want to give you the opportunity, Ben, where can people find you? Where can people purchase your book? What's upcoming for you that's on the calendar in terms of people wanting to be mentored? And and for someone like myself in real time in today's currency, how can I go about getting you on speed dial and pretending to like me as my mentor? <laughs> <laughs>
0: All you have to do is enter my number. You know where I am. I know where you are. And uh, I, I would be honored. Uh, the way, uh, first of all, let me uh, briefly mention the biggest thing I think I've ever worked on. And I thought I thought a lot of that was in the rearview mirror. Uh, I didn't plan to be this busy at this age, and business is picking up. Uh, always been good, but picking up. We've uh, we're building a company called The Last Protégé. The last protege being me, mm-hmm. the com. I would encourage your listeners to go, go to that website and all it'll ask is your first name and your email address so that we can keep you informed as it unfolds, which is coming rapidly. What the last protege is built around is my time, Dr. Napoleon Hill's teachings, my time with him, and how to apply it today the book is old and the truths are there but some of the writing is a little tedious and i didn't sit around with dr hill the, the gentleman who's my partner in the in the last protégé asked me the first time we talked he said now did he give you assignments because he was picturing you know dr hill in a white robe pontificating to grasshopper <laughs> uh, and I said no. He sat in my office, and we chatted, and other meetings went on. And he sat there quietly. When they left, he might have a comment. And we had lunch together a lot. And he stayed up at the house. And he couldn't shoot pool. Uh, <laughs> he attempted to. <laughs> he, he had. I'd give him a stick, but he couldn't shoot pool. Right. Uh, so it's gonna. It's based on a lot of. Uh, how to apply in real life how to apply this quick quick story zig ziglar j douglas edwards and two or three other f- famous people i forget which ones they were because they were always around the building took me to lunch one day um and dr hill declined uh, he was writing something and uh, he declined so i went i was gone about two hours which was long for even for me and mm-hmm. came back in the office and dr hill looked at me and said what was that about and I said, they want me to change my name. They say that Ben Gay is distracting and so on. <laughs> and, and he said, ignore them and went back to whatever he was writing. So, so he didn't have to write a book on telling me to ignore them. He just said ignore them and went on. He taught me simplicity and yes. f- focus more than almost anything else. Okay, th- so that's uh, thelastprotege.com. I would love to have your people go there so they can stay abreast. Uh, I would also like to be able to send them four or five times a year some update on where I'm going to be or, or some special or something. They can get that at BFG Three dot com. B is in Ben. F is in Frank. G is in Gay. The numeral three dot com. A little box will come down. Put your name and email in there. We won't harass you. You don't have to buy anything. But if you want to know if I'm going to appear in your town and you might want to come join us, that's probably the f- best place to find it. And then. As far as buying my material, the the famous Closers series, which I'm proud to tell you is the most powerful, most popular, best-selling uh, books on selling closing ever written.
1: Yeehaw!
0: They're... Yeehaw! Well, Yeehaw! We sold 5 million copies of what is now called Part 1 when we quit counting 20, 25 years ago. So, it's overwhelmingly, when people who've written sales books say, "Well, roughly, how many of you sold us? I, I really don't know, but we quit counting at five million when you were ten 10- <laughs> <laughs> when you were ten years old. Uh, usually it brings them up. But anyway, I've got a place they can go and get it with special pricing, cheaper than at my website and with free shipping. You go to stores s t o r e s dot ebay dot com. Slash Ronzoni Books, R O N Z O N E Books, all one word. And there you get special pricing, about 20% more or more less than I sell them for, and free shipping. And people say, How can you do that? Well, here's how I, I don't, but here's how Ronzoni Books can do it. Ronzoni is Gigi's maiden name. Oh. So, so there's a little tie in there. And where I have to pay the printer for my books, she sneaks into the warehouse and steals hers. <laughs> and no one has had the audacity to, chow- to confront her. <laughs> yeah. They'll say to me, do you know Gigi comes in here and gets uh, books and by the caseload? And I see. yeah, I'm aware. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. She's my number one thief and fan.
0: Yeah, but I want to eat at night and, you know. Uh,
1: Absolutely. And I want to do dishes in the sink this time.
0: <laughs> we actually have, Lisa, we have a dishwasher now. Woo-hoo! Dishwasher. Yeah. So Fantastic. Anytime, anytime times are tough, I say, listen, wash a load in the bathtub and get back to me.
1: There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Ben, these interviews always go too quickly for my liking, but you're always welcome to come back. You know that. Uh, This has been fantastic. I've enjoyed the humor. I've enjoyed the banter. And I've enjoyed all the nuggets that you've imparted to myself and the listening audience. So to the listeners, I want to thank you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedule, for tuning in weekly here with Living Fearlessly, with Lisa McDonald, with my phenomenal guests of each week. I want to thank you for the reviews and for subscribing and finding us over on iHeartRadio and Spotify and iTunes and Apple and all the daily Statistics and metrics we get in the reviews—it's been fantastic. I'm here, very clear about my purpose: is to uplift you, to fear less, and to live more. I want to thank again my corporate sponsors: Aha, That, Forever, and Halton Honda. And I want to also remind you that my guest of each week will be showcased, also, and found. On C-Suite Radio Network, on my host page, Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. So I want to wish everybody a safe, fantastic, awesome, fearless weekend. We'll be back here again next Friday doing the same thing. Love and gratitude. All my best. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald.